0: Hey guys, it's Dr. Delvina, board certified psychiatrist in South Florida. Are you ready to take the couch? Hey, happy Sunday, guys. It's time for another episode of the Brain Love Podcast with me, Dr. Delvina, as your host. The hostess with the most is, yes, Brain Love. So tonight I'm discussing racism and how it has implications on our mental health. Um, You know, last week I discussed Chadwick Bozeman and why he meant so much to the black community and I just kind of wanted to um, dovetail from that topic and go into, well, you know, why do we need someone like Chadwick Bozeman? Because he does, um, based on the roles that he played in his persona and the way he presented during interviews there was a stabilizing effect that he had on all of us. And so um, a few nights ago, I participated um, on a panel discussing racism and the mental health implications, and I was joined along with uh, two other great mental health experts and therapists. The panel was moderated by uh, Esquire, a.k.a. attorney, lawyer, Ashley Gant, who is the president of the T.J. Riddick Bar Association, and also included Dre Johnson, a social worker for the Broward Schools, and uh, Dr. Veronica Johnson, who is a psychologist in Harlem um, and has done studies on racial traumas. So I want you to know that this is a vital topic that maybe you should share with your children because there's nothing in here explicit Really, there's some uh, examples of what would be considered microaggressions um, towards black folk or people of a minority or um, someone who's being treated differently or discriminated against. Um, But this is a very good discussion because it goes into what does discrimination look like? We talk about imposter syndrome as well. Uh, We talk about disarming the microaggressions, how can you deal in the moment with the microaggression and how do you deal with it over time, Uh, over time meaning a few days or a few weeks. Um, And then so we talk about the implications of racism on our brains and our minds, on our bodies and how it affects our daily routine. Um, And then we go into something that I'm sure a lot of you have heard before, it's called the imposter phenomenon phenomenon. Um, And so um, before we get into the interview, I just want to break down a few terms for everyone so that we're all on the same page. So please join me on my couch. Are you ready to take the couch, guys? So if you weren't aware, the Washington Post database of police shootings since 2015 has indicated that about 22% of those shot and killed by the police report signs of mental illness. And in addition to that, um, we know from studies done by researchers at places like Harvard, they found that black people in San Francisco and urban cities such as San Francisco, they were five times, blacks, black people were five times more likely to die in an encounter with police than whites. Um, and if you think that is um, a coincidence, it isn't. It's not a coincidence. So we talk about overt racism, which racism is a racial prejudice that's been incorporated into the functions of major institutions, corporations, social systems. We see it in the healthcare um, industry as well as banking. And everywhere you go, there's a possibility for racism. It leads to discriminating against a minority racial ethnic group while maintaining the benefits of privileges of a of a majority so of, of being white you know i'll use that as the example in america um, and when the majority group is in power they make decisions based on racial prejudice this can then lead to unjust social political barriers and policies against the, the minority group so what is discrimination? Discrimination occurs when a person is harassed or treated less favor- favorably because of their membership in a particular group. So a group like um, your racial group or uh, your race, your ethnicity, or could be religious affiliation, like um, Jewish folks could be gender, such as being um, homosexual, could be age, such as being older or younger, Um I'm sorry, and when I said gender, I meant um, sexual orientation. But gender, yes, such as discriminating against um, women. Um, So discrimination is um, something that is seen ubiquitously in America, um, as well as prejudice. Prejudice refers to any negative beliefs, feelings, judgments, or opinions we hold about people based on their membership in these groups. So we're speaking about race, um, which is what we... spoke about a few nights ago, then we're talking about black folk. So we know that um, some of the implications of racism in America can lead to making us feeling unsettled, sad, depressed, anxious, nervous, the hypervigilance, just feeling like someone is always talking about us or thinking about us from, um A racial or ethnic standpoint that maybe a decision someone made regarding us had something to do with how we look. So um, Dre, what do you think about the implications of racism in America?
1: Uh, I agree. Um, She hit the nail on the head when she talks about the hypervigilance. And so what we'll see sometimes is something known as vicarious trauma, where a trauma doesn't even need to happen directly to a person. It can be something like You're watching the news and you see George Floyd killed or you see the story about Breonna Taylor or any of those polarizing stories about someone that looks like you. And so you'll develop this this hyper vigilance or or, or sort of hypersensitivity to race. Um, So you'll find yourself uh, in terms of the anxiety. You may be someone who goes for jobs all the time. And now you see uh, Ahmaud Arbery killed jogging. And you're like, now you're second guessing, should I go for that jog? Even if it's broad daylight, I don't know if that's something I feel comfortable with now. And that's something that we have to deal with now more so than ever. But even before the social unrest and before the coronavirus, that was something that black and brown folks have been dealing with for a long time. Um, Just in terms of the microaggressions that we face on a day-to-day basis in America, we have a lot of things in our way. And it's not only anxiety or PTSD that are that are rising now. Now we're seeing domestic violence at a higher rate uh, because kids are at home, you can't really leave. Mom's at home with dad or stepdad or whomever he may be and things are happening. Child abuse numbers are going higher and higher. We're seeing more child abuse reports with parents staying home frustrated. They have to try to teach. They have to try to parent. Um, psychotic symptoms are higher. Suicidal ideation is, is at an all-time high. So we're seeing a lot of different things going on coupled with what we've already been going through for generations kind of compounded because of the pandemic and not just the coronavirus pandemic, but the social unrest pandemic that we're seeing as well. So I think vicarious trauma is something that we have to be aware of, or some people call it secondary trauma, that when we see black bodies uh, killed uh, with impunity, it's something that does affect our mental health as well. So we have to keep that in check as we watch what we watch on on the news, on social media, the people we're around, that's something that we definitely have to be cognizant of uh, now more than ever. Johnson?
2: Yeah, I think everything that's been said uh, is true, and I'll just add a little bit to that um, because I think racism has, I will say, a very profound impact on our mental health. Um, as Black people and, and other, other people of color also experience this. Um, and so my particular area of study is actually race-based traumatic stress. So uh, I was sort of silently and non-verbally cheering, um, as Dr. Thomas talked about calling these racial traumas, right? Because that's exactly what it is. We understand that there are some experiences of racism that can lead to traumatic stress reactions. Uh, And so trauma is understood as an adverse experience, a stressful experience that overwhelms our ability to cope with it. So when Dre is talking about, uh, you know, now in the context of the pandemic, people having a hard time sort of coping just with like everyday, like schooling their children, um, strife in relationships, right? That further sort of uh, inhibits us from being able to use coping resources to deal with Everything in life, including experiences of racism, and so we're seeing, or I'm seeing, higher levels of race racial stress, higher levels of race-based traumatic stress because we simply cannot cope with it. Maybe in ways that in the ways that we previously could have, um, if we weren't dealing also with a pandemic. So some of the symptoms of race-based traumatic stress have already been mentioned, and so I'll just uh, you know sort of go over or highlight them. Uh, hypervigilance, as Dr. Thomas mentioned, physical symptoms like stomach pain, headaches, intense anger, uh, depression, right? So, um, so sadness, low mood, suicidal ideation, as has been mentioned, intrusion, which I think is a really important one to mention, which is re experiencing an event, right? That might be flashbacks, that might be nightmares. Um, and then naturally, anxiety, which has also been mentioned. Um, And so forth. So, there are a lot of different mental health symptoms that show up as a result of exposure to racism. The last point I'll make is that what we understand from research is that it's not always these very, very overt uh, and fatal experiences of racism, whether vicarious or um, um, or sort of, you know, experienced by the person that caused race-based traumatic stress. We also understand that more subtle forms of racism, like microaggressions, actually end up leading to more race-based traumatic stress because we have a harder time contending with, like, was that about race, right, or was it not? And so it sends us into this kind of cognitive spiral where we can't really truly identify what happened to us or we have we lack confidence in what happened to us, Um, And so that really overwhelms us kind of cognitively. Um, And so the point that I want to drive home is that we want to keep a broad spectrum of experiences under our umbrella of racial traumas.
0: Okay. Uh, Gentlemen and and ladies, let's talk about the imposter syndrome and how it, how it manifests, how we, um, how it plays out, especially amongst black women. Basically, we know the imposter phenomenon can occur if you do not believe that you are as intellectually capable as your peers or have the skills necessary to fulfill requirements of your your role. Um, these things can lead you to deny that you are a successful person, can make you feel that you don't deserve the things that you have been, um, that you've earned, not necessarily been rewarded, but that you've earned Um, And this can happen, meaning the imposter phenomenon across gender, racial, ethnic groups, socioeconomic status, careers. It happens to lawyers, surgeons, graduate students, performers, historians. It happens to a lot of us. So let's talk about that for a second.
2: It's tough to follow, right? Because I think everything that's been offered is so wonderful. Uh, One of the things I do is I read my CV every week and then you know, I'm reminded of the things that I've been able to accomplish in my own career. And so just as a practical thing that you can do for yourself if you're feeling this way, go ahead and take a look at your resume <laughs> and you'll be reminded of the things that you've been able to accomplish. Um, And adding to that, right, I think what Dr. Thomas is saying about like not covering up that imposter syndrome by simply just kind of trying to push it away, um, but really embracing the feelings that you have, right, and understanding that while you experience these feelings inside of yourself, there are external forces at work called racial oppression that allow you to feel this way, right, or that cause you to feel this way. And so just because you're feeling this way um, does not mean that it's that feeling is of your own making right? So there's no need to sort of beat yourself up for having, I think, fleeting thoughts of um, of imposter syndrome, right? Um, the other thing that I was going to add about this is that, you know, I think, Ashley, you brought up a really great point about being Black women and the intersection of being Black and female. Um, it, it's very important, I think, in this conversation and with this audience to recognize that the Specific oppression that Black women face, right? Sometimes we call it gendered racism, is unique um, and perhaps in some ways different from the uh, the types of oppression that uh, that Black men face. Um, particularly, right? Uh, we understand that Black women are very much boxed in with the way that people treat them with regard to like archetypes, right? So you can be the sassy Black woman, the angry Black woman, you know, on and on and on, and that. So much of people treating you like that begins to sort of seep into your own way of being so that at a point you just know yourself as a sassy black woman, whether you're inherently that way or not. You start to think that maybe you came off angry when that wasn't your intention at all or what you were internally experiencing. And so um, I really appreciate that you brought up the intersection of race and gender there because I think it is really, really important, especially in work settings where sometimes even black men have privilege that black women do not have by virtue of being male.
0: It's very tiring to be black in America. We have to use strategies, a strategic effort to get through on a daily basis of being, of being black. Dre, what do you, what do you think about that? What do you think about our strategies in trying to manage being black in America? I'm talking about,
2: uh, When you
1: kind of talked about how you feel sometimes, Ashley, you were saying, you know, you guys alluded to something known as black tax. Like a lot of times you'll hear people talking about white privilege and most people know what white privilege is, but there's also something called black tax and that's just that little extra that we have to do as a black person in America, just to be equal with a white person with whether that's code switching and having to be bilingual. You know, if you're from an urban space, you speak one way when you're at home, you're in the neighborhood talking with your guys and your girls or whatever, whatever. Then when you get into a professional setting, now you're speaking like a total different person. Your people from back home, is like, who, who that? Like, you talking, I don't even recognize this person. And so having to be bilingual, so to speak, uh, and being able to navigate those different spaces and be a chameleon. In many places, is what's known as black tax. And that's just a little extra that we have to do. And, you know, your parents probably told you when you were younger, if you're black, you're going to have to work five times harder. You're going to have to work twice as hard as a white person in order to get those same opportunities. So that's that black tax that we sometimes have to face with. Um, and we talk about intersectionality. But in terms of your question of, like, when you get that microaggression, when you get somebody that touches your hair or say, oh, you know, you're really pretty for a black girl, and like you, you, like, it stings. And you feel some type of way and you automatically just want to jab back like you clap back be real you be ready but you gotta you gotta keep that composure because you know that what's gonna happen to you if you just defend yourself is gonna make it look like you're perpetuating the stereotype of the angry black woman or the angry black man and so I have a 24 48 hour kind of like if you get an email and you're kinda upset with the email and you immediately like you jump on the computer and you and you buttons and you're going crazy and you know better not send that email like that. You better give yourself some time to cool off and, 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 and get, get yourself kind of like out of your emotions and out of that mindset. So I have a 24, 48-hour rule when someone says something to me that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I'll go back and address it in that 24 to 48 hours. And if I don't do so within that time, I agree with myself to make amends with that and move on. But when I do address it, it kind of sounds like, hey, can I talk to you about something for a second? You know, on Tuesday made this comment or whatever about like, if we were going out and um you buy me a Hennessy or whatever the case. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know I kind of felt some type of way about it. Like, I don't even drink Hennessy. Like, we're going to give you this and have that dialogue about it because I think it's important to name your feeling. If somebody said something to you offensive. This really happened. Like, somebody sent me something that was like, it was a white person and we don't have this great relationship and they text me like, oh yeah, this is your type of situation. And it was like Hennessy and biscuits and I'm like, I don't drink Hennessy or Cinnabons. Like, what is this? I feel sometimes that's
2: a, a very good um rule of practice. I know with emails, especially in our profession, you know, you put in well in any profession, but especially in ours, you put something in writing and it's forever. So, you know, we usually have our sounding board with our friends so like, Am I tripping? Like, am I tripping?
1: <laughs>
2: sometimes you have to ask yourself. If I could just jump in here too you know the the language that people are now using in the literature is called disarming microaggressions and so it's like taking the power out of the slight um, by doing simple things uh, some of which Dre has already offered to us but I also think it's really like one of the easiest ones for me to do if I catch the microaggression in the moment is to ask for clarification. Mm-hmm. What makes you think I'm so articulate? what made you want to you know, offer me that feedback. Right. And so it puts the onus on the other person to explain to you what their thinking was when they made that comment. Right. And so Drake could say, what made you think of me when you saw that picture of Cinnabon and Hennessy? Right. And so it puts the onus on the other person to explain because the, the, perhaps the dangerousness that I think probably people feel around confronting microaggressions is that of course, right. Inevitably the person's going to be like, I didn't mean it like that, right? And so the idea is when you ask people to explain themselves or clarify for you, one, it's super professional, right? No one could accuse you of sort of not being professional by asking for clarification. And the other part is that it asks the person to really reflect on where they came up with that compliment or that, uh, you know, assumption about you, uh, and then if they can't come up with it which oftentimes they can't then you're like okay well I just want to get let you know how it felt to me to get that right and so you couple it with like I'm giving you a chance to explain yourself perhaps right even though I know where this came from and now maybe I'll do a little educating um, to you around like how this made me feel and maybe, Why, you know, you shouldn't treat other people like this or say this to other people because of how it could be taken. And so it comes off in this really sort of like lovely teaching moment. But again, I want to emphasize that just like other people have said, it's hard sometimes to do it in the moment, right? You do need to give yourself space if you're going to uh, just try to disarm the microaggression. Sometimes you need to give yourself a little bit of space and time to do so when your emotions are um, not as high.
0: So we know that when this becomes too much for us, when it becomes overwhelming, we may see changes in our routine. Like for me, I notice I get um, my sleep habits change. I, I don't sleep as well and my appetite decreases. Dr. Johnson, what do you see as, uh, as far as a change in routine or what do you think people notice when they're overwhelmed with stress?
2: I just wanted to underscore uh the ways in which we can kind of effectively and and not so effectively cope and how we're drawn to do those things even when we don't recognize what's actually happening to us so um like everyone else on the panel has said right changes in our routine are good signs um I know a lot of people mentioned uh like, loss of appetite, I experienced quite the opposite of that, right? So I'm trying to numb with, like, more food, right, and more sleep. And so I think it's just important to highlight that, like, this can go in either direction, right? We can sort of um, stop sleeping or we can get hypersomnia, right, where we're sleeping too much. Um, And all of that is designed to sort of distance ourselves from these big feelings that we're having or, you know, high levels of anxiety, sadness that we're experiencing so it's good to really watch out for uh changes in your in your normal routine have other people maybe comment like do I have I been acting normally right is something off so having good people around you to alert you to when things are really really getting to you is important
0: okay so I- how should we deal with social media excessive exposure to media and social media Dre what do you think
1: going to piggyback I think this is a huge moment to just say self-care 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 and we hear that all the time and I don't think we really understand how important it is because we've seen generations after generations after generations our parents our grandparents deal with burnout or they're stressed they come home from work every day and they're tired and they just social media will drain you like yes you'll be informed it's like the microwave it's quick it's right there you get all the news and information that you need but you get to a point where too much of any good thing can become a bad thing. And so when you're constantly seeing things on social media that are negative, it will negatively affect you. And so some people, whether it's the seeing the uh, black men and women killed by police uh, in the streets, it starts to almost – you get to a point where it's almost desensitizing you. You know what I mean? And so when you see it, it, it almost doesn't even have that same shock value. And you get to the point where some people are like, man, I don't know why you guys are protesting. This is going to always be racist. This is going to never end. It's just going to be like that. It happens all the time, and it's never going to stop. And so that happens when you don't have that balance. Mm -hmm. You don't have I think self-care is huge in terms of being able to recharge. And Dahima Chin, who's like one of the most famous social workers in Florida, she always says you have to pull from your power source. And what she means by that is doing things to pour that energy back into yourself, things that you love that can bring joy and light back into you, whether that's taking a warm bubble bath or uh, going for a walk or going to exercise or dancing, whatever it is that you do. Some people pray. Praying is also a form of self-care. And so just taking that time to recharge is very vital. And so I'll share a resource in in the chat box that people can use for different self-care ideas and techniques that
0: you can do to to take care of yourself. Thank you. So I'll just add to that that there's power in saying no and setting limits and boundaries, including with our families. That's who we have to do uh, that the most with. Um, We can't overwhelm ourselves, which, of course, overwhelming yourself and saying yes to too many things can produce anxiety. Dr. Johnson, what do you think?
2: And just to go off what Dr. Thomas offered um, with regard to the psychotherapy, or maybe something that you could even implement on your own, is that, you know, anxiety is fear, right? And so the idea um, of checking in with yourself is very, very important. I know for myself, sometimes my anxiety feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Like, I'm like, why, why is my heart racing right now? Like, why am I feeling out of breath? And so I'll just check in with myself and say, like, what are you afraid of right now? right, to get myself at least in check in isolating and identifying what has triggered my anxiety in that moment. And so oftentimes I'm actually able to use that question to identify what's going on. Oh, I'm going into a faculty meeting and they want me to present on this and I'm worried that I'm going to mess up my presentation, right? Or, Oh, I, you know, I don't want to interact with this partner because we had a negative experience a couple years ago or what have you. Um, That was my attempt to try to throw out something that's relevant. That's all I got. Um, But so it was a good example. It was a good example. Oh, awesome. Okay. Thank you. But the idea is that you want to check in with yourself and figure out what is it that you're afraid of in that moment, um, when you go towards seeing a psychotherapist, um, a particular modality of therapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, um, and that can be really, really effective. Um, you can work with a therapist to confront maybe some of those irrational thoughts that you might be holding that's rooted in, or excuse me, that's manifesting as anxiety, right? Like, I'm never going to be able to pronounce this word or give this presentation seamlessly, Um I'm, I mess up everything, right? I'm not worthy, right? When we go back to that idea of like imposters, syndrome, I'm not worthy to be in the position that I'm in. And that makes me feel fearful all the time. Um, so a therapist can help you understand how some of those irrational thoughts that are not always apparent to you, they're not always conscious, are manifesting as anxiety and help you to sort of reframe them, right. Is it really true that you don't deserve your position? right? let's Let's go through the evidence for that and the evidence against that And where do we end up? right? And ultimately you get a chance to sort of dismantle and disrupt some of those irrational thoughts that we're sort of having all throughout the day, but we don't have any idea that they're triggering our anxiety. Mr. Johnson,
1: any opportunity that I get to say go to therapy, I'm going to say go to therapy absolutely 100% of the time. I think you really have to normalize therapy and not make it sound as if it's something that's like, oh, if something crazy is going on in your life, like you have to be hitting rock bottom in order to go to therapy. I think that everybody should go to therapy. Everybody. The same way you have a doctor and you see a doctor once a year to get a regular checkup, physical. You go see the dentist every six months. I think you should go see your therapist. Every six months, you should check in with a mental health professional every six six to twelve months. That should just be a standard norm. Like that shouldn't be something that you have to be so low at a point where you feel like, oh man, I, I'm at, I'm in deep in already. You should just go to therapy. So I just want to normalize and try to break that stigma down. That that's something that everybody should do. It's something that I did. Uh, it was very effective and helpful for me in unpacking a lot of things. But it's definitely, I think. We talk about COVID and how that changed uh, mental health for us. Uh, How it changed everything, really. Schools, everything, you name it. One thing, I guess, silver lining of the coronavirus, you can say, is access to mental health. Now, telehealth, teletherapy is bigger than it ever was. Mm -hmm. It has fast-tracked the mental health world. Like People who weren't even clinicians are becoming clinicians now because there's such a need for it now and you can do it from state to state to state. So now it's not a matter of, well, I live in this rural town, and I would have to drive an hour to get to a therapist. Now you can just turn on your phone, and you can call on something you got right on your phone. Now they're, they're even allowing you to use FaceTime, WhatsApp, whereas those things were, like, not approved before. You had to use certain uh, apps and platforms. Now it's, 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 it's so easy to do now, That is more so in our grasp and in our reach, and so we just have to normalize that that's okay. Uh, And and I don't know, for me, it's a pet peeve of mine when I see somebody that talks about mental health, like, oh yeah, I'm going to see my therapist, and people start making jokes about it. Like that's really a pet peeve of mine. Uh, I hate when people do that, and I know a lot of times people are joking, but that's it's really nothing to joke about. Like I mean, it's just people getting checked up. Like I think it's very necessary, so I'm a strong advocate therapy absolutely though even if you don't feel like anything
0: is wrong just hey guys thank you so much for joining all of us on the on the couch this sunday night on the brain love podcast you know this discussion is a much needed discussion it should be a continued commentary um, as we face and engage these um, racial traumas that we see in our country Seeing all these things on um, the news, hearing them on social media, seeing them on social media. Um, As Dre said, psychotherapy is essential. It's just a way to help you process your life with someone who is a third unbiased party who is neutral. You know, they're going to tell you what's healthy for you if they're a good therapist and they'll help you arrive and process on your own. They'll help you arrive at the healthy conclusions for yourself. They'll help you um, build insight and understanding and awareness of why things are happening the way that they may be in your life. Um, So anyhow, thank you for listening and um, listen this Wednesday. Be sure to tune into MIA Soul. It'll be on Facebook and YouTube. And of course, I'll post it in my social media, which is Dr. Delvina on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. I'll be talking about how children can cope or how we can teach our children to cope with racism. Um, It's a sad state of affairs, but it's something that we have to do. We have to arm our children as well. So with that being said, you'll hear from me next Sunday on the Brain Love Podcast. It's Dr. Delvina. Brain Love.